Welcome to The Last Month at the Federal Circuit, where we normally look at recent Federal Circuit decisions impacting the intellectual property community. In this episode, we're doing something a bit different. We're speaking with Finnegan partners Charles Collins Chase and Michael Flibbert about the key strategic decisions that can make or break an appeal at the Federal Circuit. Charles, I'll start with you first. Why are the strategic decisions you have to make on an appeal so important now? It's a good question. So uh, with the court canceling oral arguments, it reinforces something that we've always known as, as Federal Circuit practitioners, which is that the most important thing you can do to give your client a chance to win on appeals is write good briefs. We've always known that, but if you're going to have a lost opportunity to have an oral argument, the briefs become even more important. And so uh, it really reinforces the idea that you need to, right from the start, think about your appeal holistically, look at the issues that you want to argue, Collect your issues carefully and, and write excellent briefs so that even if the oral argument doesn't happen, you give yourself the best chance to win by putting the argument squarely in front of the court. Mike, what are some of the key strategic questions facing an appellant at the outset of an appeal? Sure. Well, of course, probably the most important issue to consider is, is what issues to present to the court on appeal. It's really important for people to keep in mind that an appeal is it's not a trial. It's really not a, a second chance to retry your case. It's, it's a more limited um, review of the, of the decision below. So you need to try to figure out which issues to present and try to be selective as to the issues you present. And then so, sort of how many issues to raise is also very important and prioritizing the arguments you're going to present. So these initial questions are really critical for the appellant to consider and, and in order to present the strongest appeal. And, and I'd add to that as well, uh, agree with everything Mike said, and, and to put that into context of a theme for your case, you, you need to select your issues and you need to persuade the court that there's a reason as an appellant to reverse the decision that's on appeal. And so I like to think about uh, what the theme will be. And, and sometimes the theme is really very simple. An appellant who is a patent owner, for example, may have a simple theme about how innovative the patented invention is. And you want to persuade the court that you have something really valuable that's worth saving. That theme helps frame the issue, for example, of invalidity to have help the court see there's something real here and we shouldn't write off this invention when we're looking at the prior art. On the flip side, oftentimes as an appellant who's challenging a patent's validity, you might embrace the theme that the patent reflected only trivial changes over what the prior art disclosed and that the prior art appreciated all of the claim features and that there's nothing new here. And then when you're selecting your issues and presenting your issues in your brief, try to draw that thread throughout the brief and use it to connect the issues that you're raising on appeal. What types of issues tend to get more traction at the federal circuit on appeal? Mike? The court tends to be more willing to, to look closely at questions of law the standard of review for questions of law is de novo. So the court is going to feel freer to, to reverse and to sort of look at the issues fresh with, with little or no deference to the lower court's decision or to the board's decision. So issues such as claim construction, interpretation of the statute, those are good examples of issues of law that the court will feel that it has uh, it's freer to, to reverse. Do you really have a better chance in, in presenting questions of law whenever possible? And sometimes you can frame questions as questions of law, even if there's a there's sort of a mixed question of, of law and fact. Emphasize the legal aspect of the issue. If you present questions of fact to the federal circuit on appeal, they, they normally are going to have a lot of deference applied because the standard of review is substantial evidence, typically. 
And so that's something that makes it you know, very difficult on you if, you if you're relying on alleged factual errors. So just be very mindful of the different standards of review and the fact that it's really desirable to, to present issues of law whenever possible on appeal. In addition to raising questions of law, it can also be helpful to focus on issues where there's been a recent change in the law or where you know that the federal circuit has shown an interest recently. And perhaps you would know that from listening to the last month at the federal circuit podcast, things that, that the court is dealing with where there's sort of a live issue that's getting a lot of traction in other cases can also be a useful place to explore for a good legal challenge in your appeal. Sometimes that can help persuade the court that your appeal raises an issue that's important. And so they, uh, the judges would come to your case already recognizing the importance of the issue you're raising. And it can also be a nice uh, out for you in terms of how to frame the decision on appeal as having made an error. Perhaps a district court, for example, did a nice job with a case and, and thought about things in the right way, but simply applied law that has now changed. And so it's an easy way to say uh, the district court did a nice job in trying, but unfortunately the law has changed and that's what compels the federal circuit to reverse in this case. Uh, it can be a nice way to present an error by the district court in a way that's not particularly impugning the court's credibility or the work that it did. So how many principal arguments for reversal do you think should be presented ideally? How many is too many? So I think in, in most cases, raising anywhere between one to three issues is ideal. It does depend on the case, obviously. Some cases are very complicated and might require raising more than that. But again, this is, this is something attorneys and clients have a hard time with because in many appeals, there's sort of a lack of appreciation that this is not a chance to sort of retry your case on appeal. And it's, it's very hard for attorneys to let arguments go that weren't successful below. But that's often what you really need to do on appeal is to kind of pare the issues down and raise only your strongest arguments. So we, we think, you know, raising up to three issues is fine. If you have more than that, sometimes you might be able to sort of fold them into other issues. So if you have six issues, maybe the fifth and sixth or fourth through six could be kind of folded under issue number three. Find, find a way to reduce it. When you raise too many arguments, you really do risk diluting your strongest arguments. You, you risk potentially losing credibility if the court feels that you're overreaching and arguing that, you know, there was seven reversible errors or something like that. And we do see that. And it's pretty common when you see many, many issues raised. So it's, it's kind of a red flag when you, when you see that many issues raised. So you really need to be careful and and ideally, try to try not to raise more than three grounds for reversal. I agree with that. The, the real answer is a complicated one. It's you need to raise all of the arguments that are really good arguments. And so the question is, how do you identify which ones those are? And, and in some cases, you do have more than three. I've seen arguments uh, at the federal circuit that lasted instead of the typical 30 minutes, lasted almost an hour because there were so many meaty issues that were worthy of the court's attention that the judges on the panel really dug into everything and it took quite a while to get through all the arguments. But that's not the typical case. And when you select a lot of arguments, you risk from a credibility perspective signaling to the court that you don't know which arguments are your best arguments. If, if all six of the arguments you put in your brief are not winners, the court thinks, hmm, maybe none of these arguments is a winner because you clearly don't know the difference between a winning argument and one that ought to have been abandoned before putting it in the brief. And you want to make sure that you have enough space in your briefs to give the arguments that are your best shot at winning a full treatment so that you can flesh them out fully and, and have the court be aware of the facts and the legal issues that should guide them to having you win. I can see why parties are tempted to include a lot of arguments because there's always that chance that your fourth argument is the winner that the court fastens onto. And so you have to use your experience 
myself, when in doubt, I adhered to the rule that was espoused by our former colleague and, and federal circuit legend, Don Dunner, which is limit yourself to three primary arguments. And, and as a rule of thumb, I find that that works very well. And so how can an appellant take advantage of undisputed facts or law on appeal? Well, it's always a good idea to try to make the court's job easier. And oftentimes there are a number of facts or questions of law that were resolved that the parties really don't dispute. And you want to make those uh, quite clear to the court. So, so that makes their job easier. It really narrows the issues for their consideration. And just as an example, if let's say you were trying to overturn summary judgment of no infringement, and there was no dispute that the defendant's product would infringe if your claim construction is correct. Well, that, that's a, something you should really tee up for the court and point out that if the pure issue of law is resolved in your favor, then it would be appropriate for the court to reverse and overturn the summary judgment of no infringement. So tying these undisputed questions of law or questions of fact to, in order to narrow the issues and show that if, if you're successful in, in resolving the narrowed issue in your favor, then you win is, is a good strategy. I would also say that it's helpful to acknowledge if you have any weaknesses in your case, and maybe so maybe it's an undisputed fact that's not in your favor, but it can be helpful for your credibility if you're willing to acknowledge the facts that are not helpful to your case, overcome them and show show that you're still entitled to, to, to relief by the court. So it doesn't always have to be undisputed facts that are favorable. Sometimes admitting facts that are unfavorable can also help strengthen your credibility. And as we all know, there are judges who uh, at oral argument will press you on those facts that are not favorable to you. And so as Mike said, it, it becomes a credibility thing to admit the facts that are not in your favor and tell the court why you ought to win anyway. Because if you get to argument and you haven't reconciled those unfavorable facts, you'll have 15 minutes to do so or the court may not be very happy with you. And at the same time, I assume that you also try to get the most benefit from any undisputed facts when you are representing an appellee. Absolutely. As an appellee, you want to highlight all the facts that support the decision on appeal and persuade the court to affirm. I find that it can be very helpful even to use uh, visual ways to present those facts. For example, a table showing all the factual evidence in the record that supports your case. If an issue on appeal is obviousness, for example, I might include a table to concisely present the disclosures in the prior art of every element of the challenge patent claims, or even better, you could point to in the table where in the decision that's on appeal, the court or agency cited all of the prior art disclosures. Really, the goal as the appellee is where possible, you want to present a Loctite case that the court should affirm and, and frame things as factual issues. So one other thing you can do is, Mike talked about as an appellant, trying to frame things as legal issues. Well, you can go back the other way as the appellee and try to reframe those issues as disputes of fact or mixed disputes of law and fact. Sometimes a pure question of law as presented in an appellant's opening brief is really more complicated. It's really a mixed question or, or perhaps it's just a pure question of fact that's being dressed up as a claim construction issue, for example. And so it's important to recast those issues so the court correctly applies the more deferential substantial evidence standard of review to any fact findings that are in the record that support your case as the appellee. I completely agree with Charles. And this is a critical point for ap appellees because oftentimes the appellant might either omit the facts that were undisputed, they were unfavorable, Sometimes appellants might overstate the factual record, and it's really the appellee's job to point out where the factual record is, is essentially undisputed and favorable for affirmance. 
based on the substantial evidence standard of review, the deference that's given to the lower court. So this is a critical function of the of the brief for the appellee to kind of bring things back to to reality if the if the appellant's brief has kind of presented the facts in a way that's kind of one-sided or failed to acknowledge where the parties really didn't dispute something, but where it's where it's favorable for the appellee. What are some of the initial strategic questions facing an appellee defending a decision on appeal at the federal circuit? Well, really, again, the critical thing is for the appellee to figure out how to emphasize the fact finding that occurred below, because the fact finding that that was made is subject to the the substantial evidence standard of review, typically, or there may be a clear error standard of review applied. So ideally, the appellee should show that the federal circuit show the court that the lower court or the agency did a good job and shouldn't be reversed, that they were thorough, they made factual findings that were well supported, and that the decision is is one that, that should be affirmed. I agree with that. I think it's a good, a good way to phrase it. Did the court uh, or agency that whose decision is being appealed do a good job? I think that that at the federal circuit, people get a gut sense of, are we looking at a decision here that is worth reversing? Or did the quarter agency do a nice job, consider the right facts, apply the law in a reasonable way? Sometimes people on appeal fasten on to, to pretty nuanced assignments of error. And the, and the court may look at those and say, yeah, it looks like the court did a pretty good job. And I think that gut sense can be very difficult to overcome, even if you technically have a good issue on appeal. And so in addition to presenting that that issue, as the appellee, you'd like to persuade the court, look, the court or agency did a nice job, considered things the right way. This is not a decision that's worth reversing because to do so would overstep the court's requirement to defer to the decision below. And so that's kind of the goal. So I think Mike phrased it exactly right. And what are some of the big decisions that parties face in preparing the most effective appeal brief? Well, of course, as we talked at the outset, it's it's critical to identify the issues that you're going to present. And as Charles mentioned, this idea of a theme is really critical as well. What's the theme of your case? What's the theme of your appeal? And one way we, we try to convey that effectively is through using a preliminary statement in the opening brief. So the preliminary statement in, in our practice is typically a page or two that sort of captures the entire case in the clearest and simplest way possible. We often won't include any record sites or any case sites. It's simply a statement of the case so that if the court reads the first two pages, the the judges will understand what's the issue or what are the issues on appeal and why does the appellant believe that it should win. That's your opening opportunity to present your theme, to present the story of your case. So that's, that's pretty critical. Also, how you organize the brief is a critical decision. My practice is almost always I'll try to put the strongest argument first. I, I just tend to think that when the judges read this, the first argument, they're going to assume that that's your best argument. And you don't want to have your strongest argument be buried in the brief as your, your third argument or something like that. Sometimes it, it seems a little bit illogical to have the strongest argument first. You might think, you know, the, the case law may say you have elements one, two, and three, and you may feel like you should address element one first, even though element three is your strongest argument. But I, I tend to try to find a way to address that strongest point first, no matter what. Yeah, I, I, I do the same thing. And I think one thing that can be really helpful is when you outline your brief, you're going to have a table of contents in the front. And I think that if a judge or a clerk were to open up your brief to the table of contents and read the table of contents, your whole case should be immediately apparent 
to, to the court, not all the details or facts, obviously, but what are your arguments and, and what are your best arguments and, and where are they going to dig in and, and give their time and energy to looking at the record uh, in a place where you might be able to win? And I just say on that point, one thing we're asked to do all the time is even on cases where we haven't handled anything in the agency or the district court, we're asked to come in whether uh, during those proceedings to preserve issues for appeal or after the fact. And, and to say that it can be really helpful to have somebody even within the firm, look at the issues and, and kind of give you a gut sense of which issues are the strongest ones, which ones have the best chance of winning. It can be very helpful to have that outside perspective. As Mike said, sometimes when you're involved in a case in the district court, for example, you've lived these issues for a very long time and it can be more challenging to abandon some of them on appeal. But to put that strongest argument first and to cut any arguments that aren't going to give you a good chance of winning, it can be very helpful to have some outside perspective sometimes. You both talked about how to address facts and factual issues. Let's turn to the legal side. Mike, can you discuss the importance of giving accurate case sites? Sure. That's something that's just critically important. It's hard to overemphasize how important that is. And and you do see briefs filed where the citations don't actually support what's stated in the brief. The statement of fact may be the most important part of the brief where the parties present the factual record. And we spend a lot of time trying to write a persuasive statement of facts so that the reader, uh, when he or she finishes reading the statement of facts, uh, will basically understand the case and should be basically, you know, essentially led to the decision that you're trying to get them to reach. So if you have citations that are inaccurate or you make statements in the brief that are not supported by the record, you're going to lose your credibility. And if you lose your credibility, you're going to lose your appeal. It's really that simple. And I'll just add that the judges and the clerks at the Federal Circuit are very, very deeply familiar with your case and with your record. And if you don't know your uh, record sites and your facts, they will. And they'll ask you about that at oral argument and, and ask you for a page in the joint appendix. And if you can't find it, they will have to do it and they will find it and they'll ask you about it and be disappointed that you weren't able to, to point them to it. And so it's it's vitally important to have accurate record sites. And, and not only that, but in each case for each issue, to point the court to the portions of the record that you believe will lead the court to rule in your favor. Uh, for the patentee, for example, patents aren't always the most fascinating documents to read top to bottom. And so if you've got a 40-column patent that you think someone may struggle to read from start to finish, it's going to be critically important to point to certain portions that you believe support your case. Same thing as a person challenging a patent to point to disclosures in the prior art or, or aspects of the district court transcript, sometimes thousands of pages. You have to point to those portions and be able to rely on them in your brief and at argument to be able to give the court the easiest time to find those facts that are in your favor. And how do you decide which cases to cite or emphasize in a brief? Well, I think, again, it's important to realize that your audience is a very skilled group of judges who have a deep understanding of patent law. And so keep that in mind. So if you may, you might want to include, for example, one case citation stating that claim construction is a question of law, but you certainly don't need more than one because the judges already know that. So minimize, you know, citation to undisputed sort of black letter law points. Also, you should minimize string citations or basically avoid them. The court doesn't really need to, to wade through long string sites or irrelevant case law. So it's something that actually, it makes the brief much harder to read, for one thing. The comprehensibility goes down when you're, you have lots of 
string sites, lots of quotations from cases and cases that don't necessarily matter. So try to cut, cut down on your citations when you can, makes, makes the brief more readable. And for the cases that do matter, make sure that you actually discuss them, at least to some degree. So the judges should be able to read your brief and figure out which cases you think actually apply in a way that is either a controlling case or a case that's persuasive. So you need to highlight them in a way that makes it clear that you're actually arguing that a particular case should be given some attention because the facts are analogous, the holding is controlling, or there's some reason why they need to pay, actually pay attention to that prior decision when they analyze the legal issues in your case. And, and I'll add that to highlight the parts of the cases that you think are important, I, I always avoid putting anything important in a parenthetical. My eyes just tend to gloss over parentheticals. I, I like to skip them visually. And so I think other people may have the same response. And the same is true if you have a paragraph with a lot of case sites, the text that falls between the case sites tends to get lost. If a case is important and I really want to emphasize something, I try to paraphrase all but the essential part, and then I quote that part. And actually, this is something where when Mike and I work on an appeal together, he's very good at editing things in this regard to, to really cut down the citation to only the most important part. And the hope is that by quoting less of the case, visually it stands out more when you quote that passage and you can quote something that really has some punch and really gives an air of kind of credibility of that case to what it means to your argument in your brief. And what about writing style? What kind do you think is effective for Federal Circuit briefs? Charles? Personally, I tend towards a pretty straightforward style, not a lot of sort of flowery language. I try to be as clear and concise as possible. Don't use a lot of adjectives or adverbs and, and try to stay away from grandiose language or, or things of that nature. I think the facts and the law should make your case and your job is to transmit those to the court in the clearest way that you can. I'll also say that I've attended Federal Circuit arguments where this has been discussed, and I've, I've read statements by judges on the court who really don't like and are disappointed when they see uh, parties using any sort of um, invective or, or sort of impugning their opponent, even suggesting that someone has done something wrong, you know, they, they've misinterpreted something. The court gets a little bit sensitive to that type of language. And so really, it's better if you just say the other side did not do this correctly, or the court didn't do this correctly in a very neutral fashion to keep the language very neutral. Again, let your facts and your law speak for themselves and your writing, hopefully, is just transmitting those things as clearly as possible. I completely agree with what Charles said. And we try to we spend a fair amount of time, you know, editing the briefs, trying to use active verbs, keep the sentence structure simple. We try to minimize the use of quotations. Oftentimes, you see people sort of go quote to quote to quote. And it, it, gets, it gets really difficult for the reader to follow that. Usually, if you remove the quotations and phrase it in your own words, you can make it a little easier to read. And when the reader does see, come across quotations, then it can be sort of an effective emphasis. But there's really no need to quote everything, whether it's case law or findings below. Quote, quote the things that really matter when the actual language matters. We also try to kind of minimize bold or italics emphasis use it sparingly. Pictures or diagrams can be really helpful in, in a Federal Circuit brief as part of sort of the building of uh, themes or building of a story, making it more comprehensible for the judges to follow the technology. We also make sure that you don't have typos in your brief, so make sure it's kind of carefully reviewed. And again, as we talked about this idea of the record citations being important, make sure your, your overall theme comes across 
but not in a way that's overstated. Make it uh, appropriate based on the record that you have. All right. Well, switching gears here to oral argument, Charles, what strategic decisions come up in preparing for or presenting an oral argument at the federal circuit? Sure. So I think one of the most important things that you can consider for the oral argument is simply what key points you want to get out. You have very little time. And and in fact, at the beginning of your argument, uh, when you're the first one to speak, you have even less time. So when I prepare for an oral argument, I try to think if I had one sentence, if I could get one sentence out, what would that sentence be to give us the best chance to win? And it's usually focused on the most important issue where I think we're going to get the toughest questions or where we have the greatest chance to persuade the court. And I try to get one full sentence out that if I say that, I've at least made my most important point. You don't always get one sentence out. I've, I've seen arguments where the first question comes before anyone even has a chance to speak. But I end up writing that sentence and rewriting it again and again so that if I do get that sentence out, at least I've done something that's on my list of, of getting an important point. And from there, you know, you have your list of the most important things you want to say, and you try to move from one to the other and get through those things. But really, it's the, it's the court's time. If they have questions about certain issues and that's not what you want to discuss, you, of course, try to pivot and come back to your key issues. But you have to answer the court's questions um, and, and be there to provide thoughtful responses to what is the most important issue in their mind. And so really, the time is not necessarily uh, very much your own. And so you try to use the time you do have that, that you can speak to the maximum advantage and, and from them be credible and answer the questions that are posed to you by the panel. I agree with Charles. Many people think that a federal circuit oral argument is a chance to sort of present an argument, but really it's a chance for the judges to ask questions. And, you know, as Charles mentioned earlier, the panel is going to be very well prepared. They're going to understand the case. They've looked at the record. They've looked at the decision below. And they're going to have some questions. And really, your job is to answer their questions. So there's actually just not a lot of time to do much beyond answering the questions. But you want to try to work in your key points. Once you've done a few of these arguments, it becomes very apparent how quickly the time goes. So the, the time just seems to disappear. So having just a few bullet points to have the points that you really want to try to get across is, is important. And a few you know record, critical record sites. But we, we really emphasize listening to the judge's questions, try to be responsive and answer their questions. And if you're the appellee and you're sitting there and you're listening to the appellant's argument and you hear questions coming from the panel, listen to the questions and try to anticipate what their concerns are. So it's really important to do a lot of careful listening during the argument and to try to be as responsive as you can be to the questions that are coming from the panel. Can you anticipate what questions you'll get from the federal circuit? Well, I think you can certainly anticipate at least one thing, which is that if you uh, have tough spots in your case, the panel is going to ask you about those. And so I always try before an oral argument to think of basically the worst question, the question I least want to get. And I can view it as an almost guaranteed situation of getting that question. So I try to think of the best possible responses. Sometimes there are tough spots in your case that are that are just impossible to get around and you have to address them head on. Uh, other times, perhaps other things are an area where you could shift the focus because there's an alternative path for you to win. But the court's going to ask those questions and they're usually going to ask them right away. Based on the briefing, 
you should have a good idea of where the core of the dispute is and expect questions that probe any weaknesses on those points. The court sometimes also will ask questions if there are any sort of procedural complications of your case. For example, how the appeal would need to be resolved if there were a reversal versus if it needed to be vacated and remanded for further proceedings uh, in the court or the agency. Um, Sometimes those things can be a little bit complicated. And so you can anticipate questions about uh, how that should be done logistically just to aid the court. But really, again, the questions you can anticipate, pick the hardest questions. And I oftentimes enlist the help of my colleagues, including Mike, to to think, you know, what's your worst question you're going to get? And then I just assume I'm going to get that question. I agree with Charles. And we do often do a mood court exercise before the oral argument. It's really helpful to be practicing sort of on your feet and having people come in and ask questions. Maybe have someone who wasn't involved in the case below, but who has some experience with the federal circuit, review the briefs and participate in the moot court argument. And they may come up with some really good questions that you hadn't really thought about because they're looking at it fresh. So I would say that's useful. Also, the bottom line is you have to be completely familiar with the record, the factual record, the decision below, the, the, the case law. And if you're, if you're thoroughly versed in the case and really well prepared, then hopefully you're in a good position to answer any questions that that the panel has. And it just gives you that preparation that allows you to be flexible and to really focus on trying to satisfy the the court that you have a strong case and really to answer their questions uh, in a way that's persuasive. And given the limited time at oral argument, what points can or should you leave uh, to the briefs? I think it's a safe bet, as as Mike mentioned, and I, I believe I did as well. The court comes to these arguments extremely well prepared. It's not uncommon for the court to know the record as well as the advocates sometimes. And so I think you can leave aside summaries of the facts and assume that the court understands the facts, understands the decision that's being appealed, uh, knows the main arguments, and and wants to really dig into the uh, tension points, the, the points where the parties disagree that make or break the case. And so I tend to leave behind to the briefs, anything besides those points and try just to cut right to the chase and get in on the, the most important issue because that's what the court is probably going to want to talk about. I, of course, try to prioritize the, the issue that's the disputed issue that favors the party that I'm representing. But really, you can assume that the court's familiar with the record and, and just wants to dig in on the issues to decide how, to, how the case should come out. I agree. And you often see attorneys rushing through their argument because they feel like they have to address everything that was in their brief. And so they they don't answer the judge's questions thoroughly because they really want to get back to their outline and hit, you know, all six rounds for reversal. And that's that's really a, a mistake because maybe maybe the first argument they have is a really strong one. But if they don't fully develop it during the argument or answer all the questions, they're you know, missing out on an opportunity. So you really do occasionally need to to just acknowledge that you you won't be addressing all the arguments because they're they're in the brief. And the panel is already well prepared and they probably don't need you to address all the arguments. So what you really need to do is address their questions. And typically they've narrowed the case down to maybe one or two issues that they're thinking about. So you have to really spend the time addressing the questions. And there just isn't time to address everything that's in the briefs. And you really don't need to. It's, it's not the function of oral argument. Okay, well, we'll leave it there. Charles, Mike, thank you so much. Our guests have been Charles Collins Chase and Michael Flibert, partners at Finnegan, one of the largest IP law firms in the world. 
For more commentary on intellectual property news and issues, to listen to other podcasts, and to receive additional information on the firm, please visit www.finnegan.com. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Finnegan.